Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Today we continue our summer series where we are looking at the theme of strengthening ourselves in the Lord. That as followers of Christ, we make a choice to strengthen ourselves in the Lord, that we will seek Him, that we will spend time with Him, and that we will implement routines and practices and disciplines to enable this, that we are deliberate and purposeful in pursuing the things of God and that help us sometimes to merely survive as followers of Christ, but also sometimes to bring us through into victory. I love the way that Craig Rochelle puts it when he says, discipline is the bridge between who you are and who you want to become. So powerful. So far over these weeks, we have looked at David in Adelam's cave. We have looked at the power of a thankful and grateful heart. And last week, we looked at strengthening ourselves when faith is under fire. And we can find those on our website. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to Christians in Rome, and in it, he encouraged them to remember who they were. He spent a great deal of time teaching heavy and strong theology with them. He talked about God speaking through creation. He talked about God's purposes for the Jews and for the Gentiles. He reminded them that people were without excuse, that when it came to their knowledge of God, because If any human looks at creation, they can see evidence of a creator. Not the creator, but definitely a creator. He then goes on to talk to them about what it means to be forgiven by God through faith in Jesus' name alone. Not in our own works, not in being clever or strong or articulate or strategic or even important, but just trusting that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for us. He challenged the notion that anyone can claim any merit for that and that he says that none of us are righteous, none of us are holy, none of us deserve anything and nor are we good enough. He instructs them and wants them to remember that when you become a follower of Christ, when you have decided to follow Jesus, this is quite simple. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He has told them that they need to be baptized by being immersed in water, like a grave and being risen out again as a symbol of Jesus' resurrection, power living in them. He has told them to remember the power of the Holy Spirit. He says you cannot live this Christian life on your own. You cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ in your own strength. The same God that rescued you is the God who wants to indwell you, give you confidence and courage and power to keep living for him. For the first 11 chapters of this book, he wrestles with huge theological convictions, talking about what God is doing in the world and what this means for the reader for then and for us today. And then in chapter 12, like a swivel, like a fulcrum, The whole book turns. He says, now that you know 
all of this, now that you understand, now that I have told you all of this stuff, I want you to allow your bodies to be presented as a living sacrifice. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 says these famous words, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern that what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It is the idea of a transformed mind and its power that I want us to look at today. Recently, I came across something that I first found many, many years ago, and it was a, a job description for a pastor. It was a very tongue-in-cheek, humorous uh, go with a job description, and uh, I find it amusing every time I read it. So I'm going to read it to you this morning. It says this, the job description of a perfect pastor. He condemns sin roundly, but never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the church caretaker. The perfect pastor makes $100 a week, wears good clothes, drives a good car, buys good books, and donates $70 a week to the church. He is 29 years old and has 40 years experience. Above all, he is handsome. The perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers and he spends most of his time with the senior citizens. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to this church. He makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office to be handy when needed. See, the perfect pastor always has time for church council and all of its committees. He never misses the meeting of any church organization and is always evangelizing the unchurch. The perfect pastor is always in the next church over. If your pastor does not measure up, simply send this notice to six other churches that are tired of their pastor too. Then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of the list. If everyone cooperates in one week, you will receive 1,643 pastors. One of them, I am sure, will be perfect. Funny, but more seriously now, if we are not careful, we can end up living with the expectation of others, thus allowing us to be shaped by what they want of us, rather than what God wants. The expectation of parents on children and vice versa, dads on sons, mothers on daughters, parents on married children, even husband on wife or wife on husband. The expectation of friends, colleagues, peers, voices from our past and so much more. And it doesn't necessarily stop there with the people that we live or we work with. The expectation of others can shape our lives and our minds long after we have even left home, got married, or even when the owner of that voice is no longer alive. There is danger in living under the expectation of others. Dr. Henry Cloud says these words, if we feel responsible for other people's feelings or expectations, we can no longer make decisions based on what is right. We will make decisions 
based on how others feel about our choices. God has called us to be followers of Christ, and he is by far or should be more important in our priorities than any other human being. This does not mean, of course, that we totally disregard the expectation of others. That's not what it's being said. But it means that we need to make sure that our minds, our thinking, our life is being shaped by the right voices and not the wrong ones. We need to make sure that the voices that are loudest in our head is the voice that is going to bring us into greater and greater godliness. All of us allow other voices to be too loud in our heads. And there is a point that we have to allow ourselves, we have to give ourselves permission to turn down the voices or, or turn down the, vo uh, the dial on the voices that are not as important as they think they are and turn up the dial on the voices that are. If we do not do this, we will end up running around after everybody. And this doesn't matter if you're a pastor, a CEO, a mother or a son or a daughter. If we end up running after everyone else's demands of us, we will not have the energy or the headspace to allow God to be doing the work that he really wants to do in our hearts and in our lives. And life will be miserable too. This is the most important voice, hearing that of God's. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 speaks to this very, very well. And I just want to read a couple of different versions to give us that taste, that slant. I've already read the new Revised Standard Version, but i just read it again. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Eugene Peterson in the message says, says it like only he can, says these words, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, and you're walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. And like the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. J.B. Phillips says it like this, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands and moves towards the goal of true, true maturity. William Barclay, a Scottish theologian, sometimes called the beloved heretic by some, says this, 
Stop always trying to adjust your life to the world's way. You must get a new attitude to life. Your whole mental outlook must be radically altered so that you will be able to decide what God's will is, to know what is good and pleasing to him and perfect. Every one of us is shaped in our mind by something. The question that we need to be asking is by what or by whom? You can say, well, Chris, I'm a free thinker. I'm a free agent. Nobody shapes my mind. Well, yes, they do. Every single one of us is shaped by something. The question is, what is the most powerful voice that is shaping us? If it is the expectation of others, then this is shaping us. If it is the demands of our culture, then this is shaping us. There are ways that the demands of our culture make it so hard for us, if I can use this phrase, to be, so, to be non-conformist in any way. They make it so hard to break out of the mold and to be different to the flow of what is happening in general culture. Three simple examples of this. The idea that the individual is always right. You can have whatever you want. That real sense of individualism. You may think that's not a loud voice. It is a massively loud voice. One of the loudest voices out there currently. And sadly, I believe this has overflowed from our culture and desires to flood the church. And I think it has started where people say, nobody is going to tell me what to do. Nobody is going to show me how to live. Don't we realize that the voices that are saying this are actually doing it? Culture is telling us how to live. It is telling us what is acceptable while whispering at the same time that you are making your own choices. It is the greatest lie of our age. Materialism is another. I am entitled to what I want. I'm entitled to be healthy and have the resources to do what I like and when I like. Please hear me. Money and possessions are absolutely not wrong at all. But when our lives exist to obtain such things or to be seen to have these things, then we have to ask, are they the loudest voice in our lives? These things can and do rip into the soul of many, many followers of Christ. And then when the time comes to make decisions in life about priorities, godliness, discipleship, we do have to ask the question how their lives have been shaped. Sexual liberation. Thirdly, if the culture tells me it's okay sexually, then it is okay sexually. If one wants to know if you are being controlled or heavily influenced by the culture around us, then we need to ask ourselves some questions. For example, what am I aiming for? What would, in my thinking, make me truly happy? What is it, if I had it today, I would be the happiest I could be? Pastorally, my experience is that these answers vary greatly. Often it is a better or more education or a more understanding spouse or a partner. Or I wish I could have a trophy child that impresses everybody. If I could be free from this family member or from the guilt that they bring with them. If I could just tone this body a little bit more and lose a couple of kilos here or there, then I would be happy and there's so much more. These are thoughts that are shaping and dominating our lives. You see, what we treasure, 
what we prize above all other things, that which override our thoughts and desires for him and his purposes, are perhaps misplaced in our thinking. They may not well be wrong, but perhaps they're not in their rightful place. Personally, when I read the story of Abraham and Isaac, Abraham being off, asked to, uh, to sacrifice his son, I realized that this man's mind was renewed by something way stronger than mine. He had a much stronger conviction of who God is than I have. I could not have done or gone anywhere close to how far he went. What we yearn for, what we lust after, will go a long way to reveal what controls our thinking patterns. And so here in the letter to the Romans, God says to Christians through Paul, do not let your mind be controlled by other things, but have a different mindset. The formation of the language used here is not simply interesting, it is actually informative and incredibly challenging because this is not presented as an option, nor as a request, or a take it or leave it principle. But do not be conformed to the image of this world is a command. In fact, two commands, two imperatives sit here together following one after the other. They are not optional, they are actually commands. This is what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 1 when he says, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze it into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all demands and moves towards the goal of true maturity. John echoes this again in 1 John. Do not love the world or the things of the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. You see, when we gave our hearts to the Lord, when we got saved, for some it was the miracle of a moment, whilst for others it was an awakening over a period of time. But the discipleship of our lives began at this time, and it is a task of a lifetime. The renewing of our minds started when we came to Jesus, and it is still ongoing today. Salvation changed our destiny and direction. And for me, it was just short of 50 years ago. And ever since then, he has been working on me. The longer we travel this journey of faith, we will discover that God will peel off, strip away wrong ways of thinking in our life. I look back over those 40, 50 years and God has done an incredible change in my mind, things that I used to hold dear to, things I used to think about, things that were important to me, or ways I would react, things I would respond, have changed. And layer by layer, he takes away the way we have thought about ourselves and about other things and the things of God and how we have behaved. And we truly should be a work in process. So what does it mean in practical terms to think differently? Some quick thoughts on how this comes about in our life, and I hope you like the, the simple alliteration too. First of all, it is possible. A transformed mind is possible. Some of us need to stop believing that we can't control our thoughts, that we are too far gone. 
It's a lie that must be turned away from and repented of if necessary. Oh, I cannot control my thoughts. They control me is not true. It is a weak excuse, and this excuse is not scriptural, but a great out if we need it. Uh, a great and influential American artist by the name of Bruce Neyman says, if you really want to do it, you will do it. There are no excuses. People say, Chris, this is the way I am. This is the way I am made. This is, it's my DNA. It's, it's just me. I just can't help myself. This is not true. It's a lie of the enemy of our soul. You know, the Bible in Philippians and in Joshua in the Psalms says, think about these things, about the things of God. It says, you should meditate on his word day and night. On his law, he meditates day and night. We hear that phrase of consistency and regularity. It is pretty clear that we are expected by God to choose our thoughts, not let our thoughts always be chosen by something else or someone else. If it were not possible, he would not be asking us to change. It is possible. You see, our minds are servants, either to our spirit or our flesh. This leads me nicely to, secondly, it is personal. And no one is going to be able to do it apart from us as individuals. No one can do it for me. No one can do it for you. No one can make me more godly. It is personal and it needs to be something that we fully invest our energy. We make this decision for ourselves. <laughs> we cannot make our children godly. We can give them incredible examples, but we cannot do it for them. I can't make my wife, or my wife can't make me more godly. Probably that's more to the point. Or my siblings, etc. I can only make this decision for myself. Time doesn't allow us to go into this in any depth, but if we did, we discover that the original formation of the Greek texts places the responsibility of personal godliness referred to in this passage firmly where it belongs, on the shoulders of the disciples who were called to be holy. It puts the responsibility firmly on the reader, on the follower of Christ. Consequently, this verse is not only telling us to be aware of the, of the world conforming us into its mold, but it also discourages us from patterning ourselves after the world by adopting its values, its priorities and attitudes. It goes both ways. Since Jesus died to deliver us from the world, but then to follow the standards of the world, I don't believe is an acceptable response to his grace that we have through salvation. I don't believe it's an acceptable response to his call to holiness, to be saved and then not respond. I can also decide to not allow you or the world to force me to think in a godly way. I can decide that I am not going to be driven off course by what others may say or think or do. This is a choice and only what I can make. Thirdly, Again, developing, we need to participate. Touch briefly on this as we've alluded to it elsewhere. But we have a very practical and purposeful role in the renewing of our minds. Those of us who choose to raise our hands in worship or declare the praises and His majesty when we come together on a Sunday, we are not necessarily having a great day. 
sometimes very often far from it. But we are making a choice. We are participating in the renewing of our minds that I choose to worship even when I don't feel like it. I have to confess, I can sometimes sit in church and think, do you know what? Perhaps I'd rather be somewhere else. I could have had a lie-in this morning. Why am I here? Well, you say you have to be there, Chris, it's your job. But I am there because I am participating in renewing my mind. I do not open the Bible every day and jump for joy and say, oh, I'm so excited. Sometimes I would rather read a good novel or listen to a good podcast, but I read because I am participating and choosing to participate in the process of having my mind renewed. You see, I am doing what I can do so that God can do what I cannot do. I am saying to God, create in me a clean heart. I am trying to find out what Ephesians 5 means when it says, is pleasing to God. What is that? It is a process and we participate in it. We're not going to renew our minds by accident. We are going to have to make a choice by it. <laughs> if I can be so bold and say this, please don't, please stop waiting for an outside miracle to change your mind. Don't get me wrong, we need miracles, but they alone do not change our minds without our humility and our willingness to make God's word the standard of our lives and to allow the Holy Spirit to change us. Don't wait around for a miracle for there. Please get participating. And next, it's a process. It doesn't happen, as I said, by default. It happens by desire. God will never take the center of our lives and our minds by accident. He has to be invited into this place, into this process, into our hearts. And just because we have done it once, this doesn't mean that we don't need to do it again and again and again to no renewal. There is that ongoing role of asking the Holy Spirit to help. So having his mind is a process that we all have to embark on every day in our lives. Asking, what would Jesus do? And for those of us who remember the 90s and the early zeros and the WWJD, that may sound incredibly trite now and superficial, but actually there is a very powerful message in those situations. It is going to take those sort of decisions to change our mind. It is going to take time. See, I love the story of creation found in Genesis for many, many reasons. It's just wonderful. And I think there are many reasons why God took six days to create the world instead of one day. And here's one. He wanted, I believe, to show us how to go through the process of change. Each day, something great was done. And God would end the day by celebrating what was done. Instead of complaining what was still not done, he celebrated that day's work. On the third day, when there was still so much work to be done, God saw that it was good. And he says it. God did not look on what was unfinished. Much was yet to be done. But he celebrated where they were at that stage. In the, in the fact that renewing of our mind is a process... Can I ask you, can I ask us all not to beat ourselves up when we make yet another mistake, when we fall again at the same hurdle in the renewing and in those areas that we're working at. It is a process and these things happen and we need to enjoy 
and embrace the progress and enjoy the journey. The pastor says these words, as long as you are faithful to God in the process, then we are always making progress. I want to finish this today about briefly and briefly talking about strongholds and strongholds of the mind. For many, (laughs) this will be familiar, but for some, I know the terms like spiritual warfare and spiritual stronghold weird some of us out. It's natural to think that these terms refer to only those cases where a person is wide-eyed, spewing obscenities, speaking in an otherworldly voice, and terrorizing people like in a horror movie we've seen, or perhaps we shouldn't have been watching. A stronghold often starts with a wound we received, a hurt or a disappointment that makes our heart fertile ground for seeds of lies to be planted. On this foundation, the enemy then begins to build brick by brick a wall of lies, inaccurate ideas about the person of God, erroneous interpretations of scripture, prideful thoughts, and distorted perception of how God works and how he sees us and how he feels about us. You see, lies we have believed are door-opening opportunities for the enemy to create strongholds. These include lies about God, about ourselves, about others, and about how God sees us. Lies that the enemy has been playing over and over in our mind for years, which in our pain we've unfortunately (coughs) bought into. What lies have we believed? I want to share with you very briefly one lie (coughs) that became something of a stronghold in my own life. The lie was that a couple of times when we first came here, we went on holiday. And after we came back, I think it was maybe two or three times, on each occasion when we came back, we were always faced with bad news. Something had happened when we had been away, a situation had arose. But when we came back on each occasion from those holidays, we were returning to bad news. This was true, and this was the reality for us. But it got to the stage where myself, I think more so than hope, that whenever we were going away on holiday, I began to say and I began to think, I wonder what's going to go wrong this time. I wonder what will happen. I wonder what will face us when we get back. And I started to lose my joy in going away. But when this happened a couple of times, the Holy Spirit began to show me that Satan was building a stronghold in my life and affecting my language and affecting the way that I thought. What started off as something that indeed happened for valid reasons, but over time the lie of the enemy managed to dominate and distort my thinking, and although they were lies, they became my reality. So I went to Sylvia, our head of prayer ministry, and I asked her to pray with me. I told her the story. And as she prayed with me, a stronghold was broken. Something happened. Something was broken in the heavenlies. And does it bother me now? No, it doesn't. But it could if I let it. But now I go away with no sense of foreboding, but with a sense of joy and excitement. You know, but every time we go away, Sylvia prays with me. And please forgive my returning to my Pentecostal roots. But when we pray, We keep that situation under the blood of Jesus and something is broken in the heavenlies. As I just said, a stronghold often starts with a wound we experience, a hurt or disappointment. 
that makes our heart fertile ground for seeds to be planted. The defining mark of a stronghold is it's a recurring pattern. It literally has a stronghold on you so that you find it extremely difficult to break free from. So you keep coming back to it. And that's the first indication that it's a stronghold. Keep coming back to that lie. Keep coming back to that anxiety or fear or doubt. So here are some legitimate questions to ask yourself to help you get to the root of any said stronghold. What is a constant battleground in your life? What is a constant area of battle in your life? Secondly, what unhealthy habit or unhealthy thought pattern has a stronghold on you? You know I shouldn't be doing it. I know I shouldn't be thinking like that way. I know, I know, I know, but I still, and there's a, just a reoccurring theme. And in line with this, what do I constantly struggle with? All legitimate questions to ask ourselves. So as we close, may I encourage us to take time and ask the Holy Spirit to show us patterns of thinking, of knee-jerk responses to situations and people in our life that when we see them, when we think about them, and they have now become strongholds that started off as natural but have become something in prayer. There's something else. So I encourage us to get prayer. Go to your connect group. Join a connect group. Go to a trusted friend or come and see someone on the pastoral team. Breaking strongholds is such a key role in the whole area of renewing our minds. And I finish with the why. I know we've seen scripture, but I want to say something about the why. Like, and I want to quote Joyce Mayer, who speaks incredibly well into these, this whole area. She says these words, I discovered that when we take time to renew our mind with God's word, we learn how to think like God thinks, say what God says, and act like he wants us to act. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.